We are in 1 Samuel chapter 17, page 238. We're looking at that story that, um, well, probably everybody in here, whether you grew up in church or whether you were unchurched as a child, everyone has heard at least about the story. You know these names. You know the basics. This is, this is Sunday school VBS 101, the story of David and Goliath. And, and though it's one of the most well-known Bible stories, especially from the Old Testament, uh, it is often one of the most misunderstood. And so I hope to, to take a, a deeper dive in here this morning and, and maybe see some things the Lord would have for us here together. So as we come to this chapter, um, Saul, who we've been looking at the, his life over a number of weeks and, and the role of Samuel in his life, and we've been kind of introduced to David up to this point, but Saul, he's still the king. And the Israelite army finds themselves in our chapter here camped across the valley of Elah from the Philistines, who, by the way, um, have a significant tactical advantage in this particular battle in the form of a champion named Goliath. Now, the writer uh, here has gone to great lengths, is at pain to give us a description of Goliath that would help us to, to grasp sort of the gravity of the moment. He wants us to, to feel what the Israelite army would have felt when this, well, behemoth of a man made his way out onto the battlefield and presented himself. Look there in verse 4, if you would. I'm on the wrong page. Let me fix that here. Uh, chapter 17, verse 4 says, Then Goliath, a Philistine champion from Gath, which, by the way, is, is pretty much in the region where Hamas attacked Israel in just in the last week or so. It's, it's that sort of southwestern, south-central, southwestern portion of Israel. Um, and so, as you know, that area has been fought over and contended for uh, for millennia. This is, what's happening now is nothing new. There's nothing new under the sun, and this certainly qualifies for that. Uh, but here's another enemy of God's people uh, named Goliath, a Philistine champion from Gath, who came out of the Philistine ranks to face the forces of Israel. He was over nine feet tall. He wore a bronze helmet, and his bronze coat of mail weighed 125 pounds. He also wore bronze leg armor, and he carried a bronze javelin on his shoulder. The shaft of his spear was as heavy and thick as a weaver's beam, tipped with an iron spearhead that weighed 15 pounds. His armor bearer walked ahead of him, carrying a shield. So we have this, this visual description of what the people of God saw, and then the writer goes on to, to give us sort of a... a, 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 a an auditory description of what the people of God heard. Because not only does this, does this monster of a man present himself, but he's got a thing or two to say. And verse 8 and following goes on to describe uh, what he has to say as part of the writer's attempt to paint for the reader the discomfort that they would have felt, the, the, the armies of Israel would have felt. What they saw, what they heard, and its result what it, what it, how it impacted them in their attempt to face this foe that, that is before them. Now, this past uh, Thursday, um, Pastor Jeff and I, we've been co-coaching a seven- to nine-year-old soccer team over the last month and a half or so. And we had our last game. And wouldn't you know, we were paired against the team that was full of the trash talkers. Yeah, there are trash talkers in seven- to nine-year-old soccer. 
Who would have ever thought it? And there's one boy in particular who made, he was, you know, big, once again, an impressive-looking nine-year-old. I guess he's nine. He looked like he's 12. There's one boy who made, made sure after every goal they scored, after everything that happened, that he went to each kid on our team and was in their face talking trash. I mean, I'm talking like bad words, gestures with the hands. I mean, the really kind of despicable behavior. And our kids were just so intimidated by it and so mad and frustrated. You could just see at halftime they came off the field and they're just shaking just with frustration and anger that these kids, and this one in particular, was just giving them such a hard time. And we're trying to coach them through it. You know, we're trying to, and it's and this is one of the reasons we love to coach you know, kids at this age because we're helping them, you know, these lessons they're learning on the soccer field will translate in real life. They will go out into the world and face people like that. And how they manage their response and how they, they think and process and respond, you know, it's, a, it's an issue of their character. And so we're trying to build character. We're not just trying to teach them how to kick a ball or to pass. We're teaching them life lessons. And so we're trying to coach them through this and, you know, try to help them channel their, their anger and their frustrations into, to, you know, their effort on the field and uh, not, not, you know, responding in like manner and just kind of being the better people. And they took that to heart, and they did a great job. But there's one boy in particular on our team who, with about, I don't know, eight or ten minutes left in the game, uh, had just had enough. And there's a moment where, you know, there's a little scrum of kids, you know, kicking at the ball, and the ball pops up in the air. And as it's coming down to the ground, in his anger, he just punched it out of the air. And he just stood there, just literally like this just seething with anger. And, we, and, we, and so we told him, come, come over here, come over here. So he runs. And as he's running to me, the sobs just are just pouring out of his face. And I came and he came to me and I just gave him a big old hug and, you know, tried to tell him how proud I was of him and, and how I know it's hard and your team needs you and take some deep breaths and collect yourself and go back out there and put, your, put all that effort into being the best teammate you can be. And it was just this kind of sweet moment that I had that I got to have with him in that moment. But that, that also just served to remind me, and you know this as well as I do, that the bully tends to bring out, if we're not careful, the very worst in us. The bully can bring out the worst in us. They make us feel, well, insecure, don't they? The bully makes us feel helpless. The bully makes us feel like we are somehow less than. We we, the bully embarrasses us about our, our flaws and our weaknesses and our insecurities. And there is no more perfect example of a bully in the scriptures than Goliath. He's bigger, he's stronger, he's more powerful, he's more experienced, and he knows it. And he comes out to present himself and to say the things he had to say, to taunt and to provoke and to... And to to get people to, to respond in the way that he wants them to respond. And we're told in verse 11 that Saul and all the Israelites who saw this presentation, well, they were terrified and deeply shaken. And it wasn't just like in one moment. This went on for over a month. This was 40 days of this kind of nonsense. This, this man coming out there, strutting around, showing his, his equipment and his weapons and, and saying his vile things, and the people of God had no response. Now, here's the deal. You and I, as we've been making our way through this, this, this book of the Bible, you and I know something that Saul and the Israelites should have known but didn't. 
what happened the last time in 1 Samuel that an impressive description was laid before us? What did we learn in that, in that, that passage? Well, you don't have to go back very far. It's just a chapter back. We're, we're given a, a, an impressive report about a particular person. Remember, it's, it's David's oldest brother, Eliab, there in verse 7. And what does God say in response to his impressiveness? He says, hey, don't be impressed by that. I'm not impressed with it. You don't need to be impressed with it. Don't judge him by his appearance. Don't judge him by his height. It doesn't matter how connected he is, how wealthy he is, how capable he is. Everyone around you will look at him and say, That's a, that is a specimen of a man. But God doesn't look upon the exterior, does he? What, what is God focused upon in, in the good and in the bad of the life of Israel? Well, he's focused on the things beneath the surface. The Lord peers through the, the presentation. The Lord sees the heart, and the, that is what impresses or not the Lord. He's not concerned with the things that we're concerned with. And, and one must wonder, how, how much different would this moment have been in Saul's own life if he and Samuel hadn't already parted ways? You remember by this time, we're told that, that Saul and Samuel, they went separate directions. Samuel, of course, representing the, the last and only prophet in all the land. This is this is, he's representing, he's the figurehead, the very picture of the word of God. And they have parted ways. And so there's no more prophetic voice in the life of Saul. And I just wonder how different that would have been if they had been together. If Samuel had been there in Saul's life. If Saul had been open to God's word, open to God's perspective. This truth of how God sees the, the giants and the, and the obstacles and the, the enemies that the people of God face. How different would this have been? And to really answer that question... In walks David. If we're dealing with hypotheticals, what would it have been like if someone, anybody in all of Israel, had believed the word of God and had embraced the word of God and was living life according to the word of God? What would that have looked like here? And David steps in the scene and says, I'll show you. I'll show you what this looks like. Jesse's youngest son, who's been busy this whole time, all these days of, of all this taunting and all this, you know, banging of, of weapons on shields and all the war cries, all that goes into to two massive armies squaring off in a battle like this. In the midst of all that, David has been faithfully and diligently keeping his father's sheep. So we're going to pick up the story here, and I'm going to read a lot of verses. They're going to be on the screen, uh, but I hope that you're able to enter into the story with me. I don't normally read this many verses when I read uh, a scripture text, but I'm going to read uh, from 17 to 51. Uh, I really want you to feel uh, the totality of the narrative here. So we're going to begin. Uh, verse 17, one day, Jesse said to David, take this basket of roasted grain and these 10 loaves of bread and carry them quickly to your brothers and give these 10 cuts of cheese to their captain. See how your brothers are getting along and bring back a report on how they are doing. David's brothers were with Saul and the Israelite army at the Valley of Elah fighting against the Philistines. So David left the sheep with another shepherd and set out early the next morning with the gifts as Jesse had directed him. He arrived at the camp just as the Israelite army was leaving for the battlefield with shouts and battle cries. Soon the Israelite and Philistine forces stood facing each other, army against army. David left his things with the keeper of supplies and hurried out to the ranks to greet his brothers. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, 
came out from the Philistine ranks. Then David heard him shout his usual taunt to the army of Israel. As soon as the Israelite army saw him, they began to run away in fright. Have you seen the giant? The men asked. He comes out each day to defy Israel. The king has offered a huge reward to anyone who kills him. He will give that man one of his daughters for a wife, and the man's entire family will be exempted from paying taxes. That sounds like a pretty sweet pot there, doesn't it? David asked the soldiers standing nearby, What will a man get for killing this Philistine and ending his defiance of Israel? Who is this pagan Philistine anyway, that he is allowed to defy the armies of the living God? And these men gave David the same reply, and then they said, yes, that is the reward for killing him. But when David's oldest brother Eliab heard David talking to the men, he was angry. What are you doing around here anyway, he demanded. What about those few sheep you're supposed to be taking care of? I know about your pride and deceit. You just want to see the battle. What have I done now, David replied. I was only asking a question. He walked over to some others and asked them the same thing and received the same answer. Then David's question was reported to King Saul, and the king sent for him. Don't worry about this Philistine, David told Saul. I'll go fight him. Don't be ridiculous, Saul replied. There's no way you can fight this Philistine and possibly win. You're only a boy, and he's been a man of war since his youth. But David persisted. I've been taking care of my father's sheep and goats, he said. When a lion or a bear comes to steal a lamb from the flock, I go after it with a club and rescue the lamb from its mouth. If the animal turns on me, I catch it by the jaw and club it to death. I have done this to both lions and bears, and I'll do it again to this pagan Philistine too, for he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear will rescue me from this Philistine. Saul finally consented, all right, go ahead, he said, and may the Lord be with you. Then Saul gave David his own armor and a bronze helmet and a coat of mail. David put it on, strapped the sword over it, and took a step or two to see what it was like, for he had never worn such things before. I can't go in these, he protested to Saul. I'm not used to them. So David took them off again. He picked up five smooth stones from a stream and put them into a shepherd's bag. Then armed with only the shepherd's staff and sling, he started across the valley to fight the Philistine. Goliath walked out toward David with his shield bearer ahead of him, sneering in contempt at this ruddy-faced boy. Am I a dog, he roared to David, at David, that you come at me with a stick? And he cursed David by the names of his gods. Come over here and I'll give your flesh to the birds and wild animals, Goliath yelled. David replied to the Philistine, You come to me with sword, spear, and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. Today the Lord will conquer you, and I will kill you and cut off your head. And then I will give the dead bodies of your men to the birds and wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And everyone assembled here will know that the Lord rescues his people, but not with sword and spear. This is the Lord's battle, and he will give you to us. As Goliath moved moved closer to attack, David quickly ran out to meet him. Reaching into a shepherd's bag and taking out a stone, he hurled it with his sling and hit the Philistine in the forehead. The stone sank in, and Goliath stumbled and fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with only a sling and a stone, for he had no sword. And David ran over and pulled Goliath's sword from its sheath. David used it to kill him and cut off his head. 
maybe it's not such a children's story after all. I'm always struck by the story when I come back to it and see just the detail and the description of what's taking place. At my college graduation, the the keynote speaker uh, shared a message from this this story, from this chapter. And he brought with him a a bag on a little sling over his shoulder. And as he was talking about the story, he would pull out a a stone. He had five smooth stones. And he would place one on the the lectern there, and he would make a comment about you know, how this stone represents a particular giant that you might face when you, when you graduate from college and, and go out into the world. Um, but as I came to this text this week and spent time thinking and praying and, and reading and reflecting, I wasn't so caught up in the five stones that David had as much as I was the first things we're told that David carried with him in this passage. You know, back there in verses 17 and 18, where I started reading this morning, it was a a basket of roasted grain and 10 loaves of bread and 10 cuts of cheese that he was to take to his brothers at the battlefield and to their captain. And it's interesting to me as I was reading and thinking about this and what really leapt out of the story to me, it's really interesting to me how these ordinary mundane things would be the very means by which God would position his man to be in the right place at the right time. I mean, there's no way that in that moment when Jesse was telling him to do these things that, that he would know how these simple items would factor into the, the larger providence and purposes of Yahweh. There's no way Jesse could have known that. And similarly, there's no way David could have known that such ordinary duty and obedience to his father would, would so impact the history of Israel and, by extension, the history of the whole world. Jesse just simply had said it to him, and David simply obeyed, and there were no questions asked, and this was the, the modus operandi for David's life. Some men, they seek greatness, don't they? To make a name for themselves. But others, we find, seek obedience. To make a name for Yahweh. And these are the ones who, who truly leave a mark in the world for eternity. They are the ones whose focus is not just on accomplishing big things. Yes, we all want to accomplish big things. We want to know that our lives matter. And, and we, 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 maybe you're not like me. I try to be open to the opportunities to make a, a real impact, to the thing that's really going to matter to someone's life and maybe change the, the trajectory of a, of a person's future. And we look for those big things and we want to be faithful in those moments. But, but the ones like David are not just focusing on accomplishing the big things, but they're also diligent in the little things. Because David had been faithful with a little, he could be trusted with a lot. And you know, that's not something that just mattered to God at this point in time in the history of his people. This is something that, that always matters in, to God and, and as it pertains to his people in the world. Jesus himself, there were multiple parables where Jesus reinforced this very same idea. Indeed, the, the parable of the three servants in Matthew 25 the, the, the heart of that parable is you, to the faithful servant, you have been faithful in handling this small amount, so now I will give you many more responsibilities. These are the heroes. These are the, the champions in God's heart, in God's mind. Not the strong, not the mighty, not the impressive, but the faithful, the obedient in all things, whether great or small. 
I love the process of how 1 Samuel introduces David to the reader. We first learn about him, as we mentioned a few moments ago, back in chapter 16, but we never actually hear from him until chapter 17. And, and some come to the chapter 17 and they take issue with, with it. And there's always, uh, there's always sort of a, a section of, of um, a biblical scholarship that's constantly critical of the scriptures. And I don't mean the, the type of criticism, the good type of criticism. We've, we've explored that, but the idea of textual criticism, that we're trying to, to get to the bottom of, of uh, all these sources of materials. We're trying to sift through and determine which is the, which is the right one that most accurately represents uh, the scriptures as they were handed down. But I'm talking about the, the negative type of criticism that's always looking to undermine the scriptures, right? The type that, that wants to demythologize or to, to, to try to determine what is true and what is not true. Rather than holding all the scriptures to be true, they want to pick it apart in such a way that undermines people's confidence and reliability in, in the scriptures. And there's some that come to this chapter and they're critical and they, they say there's no way this was what the original text said because Dave was already introduced back in chapter 16 and Saul would have already known who he was and, and all these arguments back and forth. But at the end of the day, chapter 17, in a way, stands apart. It's sort of a, a formal introduction to the heart of David. It's the first time we hear him speak. And it's, it's presented in a way that he's, he's countering the opposition. We had this, this description of Goliath we, we know what he looks like, we know what he sounds like, we hear what he has to say, and then in comes David. And we're given a little bit of a description of, of what he looks like. He's not the impressive figure that Goliath is. But he can match Goliath word for word. David can talk a little bit trash too. I love his little soliloquy there. But up until this point, we've not heard his voice. We've heard about him, but we have not heard from him. He's had nothing to say until this moment. And I don't know, it makes me want to draw in closer and listen. You know, there's, there's some people in our lives who have no shortage of things to say. They, in fact, they just never stop talking. And what is the tendency for people in their response to the one who never stops talking? Well, you have to really persevere through it and force yourself not to tune it out. But then there's others who have very little to say. So that when they do speak up, you're, you're like, oh, what are they going to say? Especially when that person proves to have particular words of wisdom from time to time. That's the one that you really tune into because it happens so infrequently. And I'm feeling that in this passage. David is here. We know about him. And we know he matters. If Pretend you've come to this, you know, this, this book for the first time. You've never, you don't know anything about David or what his future holds. And you come to the story, and you're reading through, and you're, you're, you're feeling like what's going on in the life of Israel. And then when David is introduced in chapter 16, you're really interested. This is God's choice to lead his people. But he hasn't said a word. So when he finally speaks, we're all ears. What does he have to say? His first words matter. Look at verse 26 again. The first words out of David in the Bible. He arrives at the battlefield. He's hearing all that's going on. He sees Goliath. He's, he's trying to get a, a feel for the situation. And he says, what will a man get for killing him? Who is this pagan anyway? Now, admittedly, when I first was diving back into this passage for this morning, 
and I was assessing what David was saying, at first reading, I read it something like him sort of, he's, he just can't believe that no one's willing to, you know, to attack or to take Goliath on in light of all the rewards that were being offered. I mean, just ask yourself, I mean, what would you do to never have to pay taxes again? I mean, I'd do a lot. <laughs> uh, maybe that's just me. But here, you know, they're, prom- they're promised riches. They're promised uh, connection to the, to the monarchy. They're, they're, there's prosperity in store. There's all the, the worldly things that a person could ever imagine and to ever hope to have. And yet no one steps forward to, to claim it. And when I first read that, I was reading David's you know, astonishment that no one was willing to pursue these worldly things. But, but then I reconsidered, what is he actually saying here? What is he actually stunned about in this passage? It's not so much that no one is willing to go out and fight this guy. David is more concerned with, who does this, this champion, this champion from Gath think he is? That's the emphasis on what David's saying for the, in his first words in the Bible. How dare he defy the Lord of heaven's armies? How dare he taunt the people of God? How dare he dishonor the name of Yahweh? That's what's in the heart of this young shepherd boy with the ruddy face. David's first words matter. And it's a fascinating and radical thing to see. Just how different his perspective is on the situation from everyone else. Is David just that naive? Or does David know something that no one else knows? I think David has taken the truth of God's word to heart. I think that's the difference. He has taken the, God's word may have departed from Saul, but God's word had been allowed to, to make its home in David. He knows that when the presence of Yahweh is factored into the equation, muscles and weapons and tactics mean nothing. They're nothing to him. David, in a reflection of Yahweh, is 100% unimpressed with the champion of Gath. And that sets him apart from the entire nation of Israel. This radical and unique and fascinating difference in perspective. And I'm challenged by that myself. How radical is my perspective towards the things in life that intimidate me? What is my impulse when I'm faced with whatever particular champion the enemy of my soul places in front of me to scare me, to taunt me, to make me want to punch the soccer ball out of the air out of desperation and hopeless frustration. What about you? What's your impulse when faced with whatever Goliath is in front of you? And I, I don't want to get cheesy with, with using Goliath as just some sort of symbol of some hardship, but, but there's something about that. What is your orientation? What is the disposition of your mind and your heart as you're navigating this life that is filled with troubles? We just sang about it. Though this world with devils filled... You know, Mighty Fortress is our God, like two-thirds of that song are about the devil. Isn't that interesting? There's so, all this attention to just what a, a force to be reckoned with, the enemy of our souls actually is, but it's meant to draw us into the, the climax that, that he has been defeated. 
that there's a champion who's on our side, and he must win the battle. That is a confession of the heart. That is a statement of faith. And that should form and give shape to our perspective of whatever we're facing in this life. And some of you are facing a lot. What's your perspective in face of it? What is your attitude? What is your impulse? The story of David challenges us to always factor into the equation every single time the presence and the power and the promises of God. David's attitude, and this is an important point, David's attitude alone doesn't make the giant go away. We see his attitude there in verse 26. We hear his heart, but the enemy's still standing there. Having the right perspective, having the right attitude alone doesn't solve the problem, but it helps us to see the enemy and face the battle rightly. That's what matters, that David can enter into this problem the right way. And having God and his word at the center of his perspective changes the calculus entirely. And I hope that's a word of encouragement to you. I can't promise you that if you get your mind right and your heart right, that suddenly everything's going to be smooth and swimming in your life. But I can promise you that if your mind and your heart are right, and if God and his presence and his power and his promises are at the center of all of your perspective and and, and is the, the strength that undergirds you in whatever you're facing, that you can face this life filled with devils. You can see it. You can enter into it rightly. And David is proof for you and me this morning. You know, there's actually three Goliaths in this chapter. Did you know that? There's three Goliaths here. Anyone want to take a guess at who the first Goliath is that he's facing? His brother, good old Eliab, who has all the things together externally, doesn't he? But you, you hear his heart there in, in verse 28. Look at verse 28 again. What are you doing around here anyway? Now, some of you come from a family full of Eliabs. You're trying your very best to have a God-centered perspective, to be focused on your world and the world around us from viewing it from his perspective and walking in his power. And the people closest to you are second-guessing you and undermining you every step of the way. You know exactly what this, what this person is like. What are you doing here anyway? What about those few sheep you're supposed to be taking care of? Just this sort of belittling gesture towards David. David, you're not worth anything. This is, leave the important stuff to us. You're dealing with the non-important things. Go back to dad. Go, thanks for the, the meat and cheese, but go back to the herd. And not only is it a diminishment of, you know, David's, the, the, the meaning of David's, you know, vocation and what he's doing with his life, but then there's a, a, an attack on his character. I know about your pride and deceit. I know what's really beneath the surface. You're not here because you're so obedient to dad. You're here because you have selfish motivations. You just want to see what's going on. You just want to make a name for yourself. I almost wonder if Eliab is projecting his own sins upon his little brother. 
maybe we're getting, maybe Eliab is exposing himself more than he intended to. You know, this, this, whole, this whole narrative is, is revealing the contents of, of the hearts of its characters from Saul to, to David to Eliab to God. We're seeing what's beneath the surface. It's, it's, it, the, the, the chapter, the pages are rife with this idea that there's more than what, is, what appears to be in the front, on top. There's something, there's something beneath. Just as God sees beneath the surface, this, the inspired scriptures are allowing us to, to peer beneath the surface. And, and there are people in here who are doing their very best to be faithful in the little things, and they're surrounded by a bunch of Eliabs. And it's discouraging and frustrating. It is a genuine obstacle to David. Don't diminish it. The, the biggest foe may not be across the valley. It may be right in his own home. Well, who's the second Goliath then? If there's three, who's the second one? We know it's his, his brother, and his, actually all the brothers are. He says, he went, and uh, after the, there in verse 28, David's responding, what have I done? I'm just asking a question. So he goes to his other brothers, and they say the same thing. So the whole family, except for his father, is apparently united against him. But who's the, who's the second Goliath here in the passage? It's Saul. So not only are the, the people closest to him in his life against him, but the very king of Israel is against him. Saul takes one look at him, and he's like, what are you doing? What are you doing here? It's Quote, in verse 33, it's ridiculous that you're here. This is, in the words of Santa Claus in the old Claymation Rudolph cartoon, this is man's work. Was it Rudolph or was it Rudolph's dad? Was it Santa or Rudolph's dad? Okay, I'm being corrected by the, the film critics in the front row. It is Rudolph's dad, when Rudolph went missing, and the mom and Clarice, the girlfriend, wanted to go find him, you know, the dad's like, this is man's work. We'll take care of it. This is, that's the voice of Saul. This is man's work. Why, oh, little ready-faced boy, are you here? You know, Saul clearly is very impressed with himself. You know, he's the one, he's walking down the hall, and he sees a mirror, and he has to stop and take a second look at it. And he can't believe that this little shepherd is even around, that he's been asking those questions. That he would speak up and have something to say. And then, of course, there's the, the Goliath in the story, whose name is Goliath. At every point along the way, David has opposition. Opposition after opposition after opposition, and it begins with his own people. Now, here's the question. Which of them do you think intimidated or deterred David the most? Raise your hand if you're an Eliab, if you're on team Eliab here. Eliab was the greatest intimidator and deterrer of David in the passage. Okay, there's a couple of Eliabs. Uh, Raise your hand if you're team Saul. Okay, a few team Sauls. Uh, What about good old Goliath? He's he's the biggest intimidator to David in the passage. Of any Goliaths, a couple Goliaths. Um, with all due respect, you're all wrong. <laughs> because I don't detect any intimidation in the heart of David facing any of them. He is completely undeterred. He stands up to his brothers. He talks back to the king. And he's trash-talking Goliath. He doesn't care. 
as a shepherd, he's faced his share of ferocious beasts, hasn't he? But his confidence is not in his experience or in his capabilities. His confidence is in what? His God. That's where his confidence is. And we have a key verse in verse 37 that has to speak to our lives. The Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear will rescue me again. The one who has proven faithful to my life, who has always been enough. What is a little shepherd boy to a lion or a bear? He's nothing, but with God, he's everything. And the one who has been with me then, he'll be with me now. My confidence is not in me, my confidence is in him. I will prevail, not because I have true grit. I will prevail because I know the one true God. The God of Israel is the God who saves. But not by the instruments of human power, not by the sword and the spear, but through the weakness of his servants. Look at verse 50. The final word in this, David triumphed over the Philistine with only a sling and a stone. He didn't even have a sword. Look at the contrast here between Goliath and David. We hear all about the bronze armor he's, Goliath has. We know how, how tall he is, how long his weapons are, how much everything weighs. I don't know if I can even pick up his javelin by myself alone. He's hauling this stuff around like a transformer. It's like Voltron has showed up to the battlefield. Who can stand up against that? David's just got a little, a little sling and some rocks. He doesn't even have a sword. He's got a stick. You know, it was with a stick that Moses defied Egypt. And it was on a stick that the Son of God defied death. In the hands of you and me, it's nothing. But with God at your side, it's all you need. Yahweh uses the weak, he uses the puny, he uses the unimpressive to deliver. Which teaches us that what matters most is not whether or not you have the best weapons by your side, but whether you have the living God who saves by your side. You don't need to be adequate. I know a lot of you very closely, very well, I'm close to you. And your life is filled with a lack of confidence in your own adequacy. And I don't, I'm not here to tell you, you're adequate. I'm here to reaffirm, you are not adequate, and that's exactly where God wants you. It's not your adequacy that matters. In fact, more often than not, God wants you to be inadequate for what he calls you to. Why? So that he can be your adequacy. Because God's going to reveal something in your life, to your life, and through your life, in your inadequacy that couldn't be revealed otherwise. And so when you face these giants, when you face these hardships, when you face these obstacles and these struggles, when you're suffering and you feel so powerless, God says, yes, <laughs> exactly. You are powerless. But I'm powerful. I'm powerful. Paul learned that, didn't he, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He tells us about how he will boast. He says, I boast in what? In my intellect? 
you know, there's some who, some who believe that Paul may have been the most brilliant mind in the history of the world. Like, genius level intellect. Is Paul boasting in his intellect? You know, Paul, as a young man, achieved great success in his field. He made a name for himself. He had connections. He was the golden boy, the wonder boy, the prodigy. Is Paul boasting in his ability, his capabilities? Is Paul boasting in his experiences, in his aptitude? I'm sure all of his tests were off the charts. Is he presenting a resume? Look what, look what, I, look what I've done. Look what I can do. Look what I bring to this situation. No, Paul says, I can only boast in my weakness. That's it. That's all I have. I have every other reason from a worldly perspective to stand here all proud of myself, to walk by the mirror and take a second look. Paul says, I don't boast in any of those things. I boast only in my weakness. And we who are struggling to have the, the mind frame and the perspective of heaven we hear that and we're like, why? Why can you, why would you even want to boast in your weakness? And he has a word for us from Jesus. Because Jesus himself said in verse 9 of that passage, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. Did you hear that? God's power works best in weakness. And if you flip that around, you can say something that almost sounds heretical. That our strength inhibits God's power. Now, obviously God is supreme and sovereign and we're but a speck of dust on the radar in comparison to him at best. I'm not saying that we limit God's power but we diminish its ability to be manifest in our lives, in our strength. So I'm not asking you to be strong this morning. Even if you are strong, and some of you are just naturally stronger than others in a whole host of ways, and I'm not talking about muscles, but in, in a lot of those things that help you navigate life and face hardship and, and difficulties, and some of you have greater access to resources, and, and you have a, a bigger, larger, more helpful network around you, you... you in a, on a worldly scale, have a whole lot more going for you. And I'm asking you to not boast in any of it, to not depend on it, to not rely upon it, to not look to it for your hope or for your salvation or for your strength. Because Jesus himself, out of the words of the Lord himself, the very champion by whose weakness on the cross death was defeated, he says, my strength works best in your life, the strength demonstrated there when you are weak. When you don't look to yourself, when you don't rely on yourself or your network or your resources or your power or your capabilities, make yourself weak that I might be strong in you. And that's Paul's testimony. I boast in my weakness. I, in, by intention, by design, I choose to be weak that he would be strong. So now, Paul continues, I am glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. Because Paul knows at the end of the day, his greatest human strength is nothing compared to Christ's littlest divine strength. So why bother trying? Why bother trying to rely on ourselves for a second? If, if, 
if not relying on ourselves means that Christ's work and his power can flow more greatly through me. I boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in the insults and hardships and persecutions and troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Listen, only the the theocentric or God-centered thinker can say that. For their, their perspective and their motivation in all things is shaped and formed by the truth that comes from heaven down. Only the one who thinks like that are driven and motivated and, and, and propelled forward by something that's greater than themselves. David cannot abide the taunts of the bully from Gath. Why? Well, because his taunts dishonor the God of Israel. That's what, that's what David takes personally in all this. Yeah, it it probably hurts that the brothers uh, treat him the way they do. Yes, uh, David was a a, a man just like I am, a a, a normal person. He wasn't a super person. He's a normal guy, and there was maybe a part of him that would have appreciated a little more hope, a little more confidence from his leader. You know, Saul, it would have been nice if you'd show a little bit of faith in me here. (laughs) I get it. But he's not driven by getting the the accolades from his leader or someone putting confidence in him or his brothers treating him rightly. What's he motivated by? Oh, he's motivated by the honor of God. That God would be honored. That's the driving force of this entire, this whole chapter. That's what's propelling us through. Not David's cleverness, not David's courage, not David's cunning, but his heart's preoccupation with the honor and glory of God. That's his propulsion for faithfulness. Yes, in the big things, when there's a giant standing on the hill across the valley from you, but also his faithfulness in the little things. Why do you think David was so quick to obey his dad? How about the fifth commandment? You think the fifth commandment was on David's mind and heart? As he's carrying the basket of grains and cheese and bread? I guarantee it. Because to him, the little thing wasn't just honoring dear old dad. It wasn't just being the obedient son. It was paying honor to the glory of God. That's what propels the faithful in the things big and small. That alone, the the glory of God is what rightly frames our perspective when faced with any and all adversity. There's a a certainty and a confidence that God in his sovereign providence has permitted these things for a little while. Because we believe and we know with the certainty that comes from faith that even the worst thing in your life, God has permitted that through it, his glory might be manifest throughout the earth. That you would bump up against your own weakness. That you would come to experience the vastness of his power. That his glory would emanate through your life. That it would extend to the ends of the earth as the waters cover the sea. 
confidence that knows that even in the worst of scenarios, God is, God is at work to produce his ultimate good for you and for those around you and for his world. It is for the glory of God that you and I have an opportunity this morning to present ourselves. That's how we're going to close the, the, the service here. We're going to present ourselves to God, unto God, in all of our inadequacies, with nothing but the sling and stone of faith. So as Pastor Jeff and the worship team are making their way, I'm going to invite you to stand. Please stand with me. I'm going to ask you to do something that might make you a little bit uncomfortable. I'm going to read a, a, as a prayer the, the little statement that we say together as a church every year at our covenant renewal service. For those of you who have been here for those, you know what I'm talking about. There's this little, uh, at the end of the service, we put this little script on the screen, and everyone reads it, and it's sort of like our commitment to present ourselves to God. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read that. You don't have to read it. I'm going to read it as a prayer. But while I do that, I'm going to invite you, if you feel led to, and if this is your heart's desire, to not just close your eyes, but to put your hands like this. As a, a physical gesture of your openness to God and his power, his presence, his perspective, his promises. It's, it's an open-handed gesture. I cling to nothing. I, I relinquish control of my life. I relinquish, relinquish control of my own sense of what needs to happen. I'm not going to control things anymore. I'm not going to try to determine things or influence things. I simply present myself to God. That's that is what I'm inviting you to do right now as I say these words as a prayer. Lord, let me be your servant under your command. I will no longer be my own. I will give up myself to your will and in all things and be satisfied that Christ shall give me my place in my work. Lord, make me what you will. I put myself fully into your hands Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and with a willing heart give it all over to your pleasure, your pleasure and disposal. Lord, these, these are the words that, that define and characterize our heart. And maybe before this moment they didn't. But I pray that in this moment, with these hands gestured outward, one of the most beautiful things I've seen in a long time in this church, I pray that if these words weren't indicative of our heart before, I pray that they would be now, that we would make a decision to consecrate ourselves to you. Every bit of our lives, we give everything over to you. Do with it as you will. We don't rely on ourselves anymore, our strength, our cunning, our experience, none of it. We lay it all aside. We count it as rubbish. And we want your power to be manifest in our weakness. So Lord, come and have your way in the lives of these people in this church today for your glory and your glory alone. In Christ's name we pray, amen.